Thank you, David and Elise. Good to be sharing God's word with you again this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me. As we finish this particular section on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be reading from verse 43 to 48 this morning. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the, the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for this time that we have to be nourished by it. We pray that our hearts would be willing to receive it. And Father, I just pray that you'd be glorified through it. Father, as we look into your word, I pray that it would be the foundation of our lives for our conduct and in every matter, faith and principle that we hold. Your word is complete and it is all we need to live lives that are pleasing to you. Father, I pray that you bless me now as I, as I share this word with my brothers and sisters here. May we not leave this place the same as we came. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. During a war between the Turks and the Armenians, <clears throat> an Armenian nurse was uh, held captive along with her family by the Turks. And during this time of captivity, the nurse had her brother slain in front of her by one of the Turkish soldiers. Somehow, during the... Um, Captivity, she was able to escape with her life and went to work for a military, as a nurse, in a military uh, hospital. And while she was working there one day, sometime later, the soldier that had slain her brother was brought in with wounds. And he was presented and, and given directly to her to look after. She recognised the man because she couldn't forget his face, I would imagine. And at that point, she had something crying out within her, saying vengeance. But another voice, which said to love, was also there. And she chose to love. And she faithfully nursed the man back to health. Toward the end of his recuperation, the soldier recognised who had recognised her as well, said, why didn't you let me die? And her simple answer to him was, I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies and do good to them which hate you. This man was uh, so impressed with her answer, the soldier replied, I've never heard such words before. Tell me more, I want this kind of religion. It's unusual 
in your life or in anyone's life not to collect a few enemies along the way. Somehow they just seem to appear out of nowhere and sometimes we tend to grab, grab onto them ourselves. It's, it's far and few between those people who can go through their whole life without having an enemy of some sort. And if you look at scripture, from the beginning, enemies were around. And if you look at the Garden of Eden and God puts two innocent, newly created people in there and there was already an enemy there called the serpent, ready to, to destroy what God had begun. They had just started their walk with the Lord and he was there ready to destroy it. There were two brothers who came soon after that and one brother chose to make himself an enemy of his, of his younger brother and ended up killing him. When David was anointed to be king of Israel and Saul had, King Saul had already been told that he was no longer required for the job, Saul made it his job to get rid of David as best he could. He made himself an enemy. And if you look at the most humble and innocent man in, in all of history, Jesus our Saviour, he had not just one enemy. He had a multitude of enemies. Sometimes standing up simply for what you believe in will cause you enemies. But the simple principle is that despite what position you take in life, despite where you walk, what you call yourself and what you do, you will never keep everyone happy. You will at times in your life have enemies, sometimes for your whole life. And it's something that, in a sense, we all have to deal with. The fact that we take a certain stance on scripture guarantees we'll have enemies. Guarantees it. The fact that we choose to live our lives in certain ways and not to do certain things, while the people around us are doing those things, guarantees we'll have enemies. And even within the church. You will choose to do things a certain way, believing the Lord has, has called you to do something, and you will have enemies because they don't agree with you. Enemies can come in all shapes and sizes. Some choose us. Some are chosen by us. How does one deal with an enemy, though? And how does one react to, or should I say better, respond to? Because there is a difference between reacting and responding. One is an emotional quick thing the other one is based on responsibility how do you deal with how do you respond to someone who opposes you and not only just opposes you but looks for your ruin as well and may act, be actively working towards it how do you deal with that type of person well one way is the way this Armenian nurse responded she had a simple choice to make would she get even with this person, with this soldier? Or would she respond the way Christ had called her to? And she chose to respond that way. Christ had a choice as well. When he was being crucified on the cross, he'd even told them beforehand that if, if he had chosen to, he could have called down legions of angels 
could have destroyed the world in a short amount of time. But he chose not to. The response or the choice that you make with the enemies you have in your life will determine not only their life, but your life as well. It will determine the relationship you have with God too. It will determine whether you walk in this world as a citizen and as, as a, of heaven and a child of God, or you walk as the rest of the people in this world. The way you respond can dramatically change everything within you and around you. And the choice that you have is not sometimes an easy one. Let's look at what, um, what the scripture says. If you go back to last week, Jesus gave us a way of responding to evil. And when th bad things happen to us, he laid down two basic principles. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, the first thing he says is, but I say unto you that you resist not evil. In other words, don't fight back. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't fight fire with fire. That's the first principle. The second principle says, respond by doing good. But I say unto you, in verse 39, that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak as also. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. In other words, if someone seeks to do you harm, do them good. Seek for their, for their good rather than for revenge. Now that's not an easy thing to do because to seek good of someone will cost you something. It will always cost. It will cost you your time, your effort, your money. In this case, he says exactly those things. It will cost you your cloak. It will cost you pain. It will cost you time if you go someone two miles instead of one. And we looked at that passage last week. And I hope that it had some effect on you last week. Because these, these things are critical for us in terms of what type of life we want to live. Because the choices we make will determine the path we take. And whether we are walking with the Lord or whether we are not. And to most people, as you look at these choices and you, you're presented with someone who hates you doing something evil towards you, if you're presented with a choice of what to do, doing good to them is a hard choice. It's hard. It's easier to do what? Either respond or run away. And most people choose the running away. Most Christians don't deal with bad things that occur to them by doing good, by being actively doing good. What they do is they run for the hills. Because doing good takes effort. Running away doesn't. But running away doesn't solve anything, does it? Running away isn't what God called us to do. Jesus could have run away at any time. But he chose not to. If you choose to run, if you choose to spend your life running away from problems when they occur, 
You will spend the rest of your life running because you will find problems wherever you go. But if you choose to love as Christ loved, you will not only free yourself, you will not only live free, but you will help to free those people who are your enemies as well. It won't happen every time, but you give them an opportunity to. So to most people, it's very challenging to react to evil with good. It's tempting to react to evil with evil. Retaliation and vengeance come naturally to our fallen nature. But if you react in that way, you're feeding what the Bible calls your flesh. You're feeding the old nature. You're not feeding the new. But in the text of this lesson, verse 43 to 48, Jesus tells us how to treat our enemies. And when you take to heart, when you truly take to heart what he's teaching here, it will do three things. It will identify you as a child of God. You'll be different to everyone else. It will identify that you are a citizen of God's kingdom living in this world because you are living differently. You respond differently. You act differently to them. You think and you speak differently. It will identify you by your very actions without you having to say that who you are and what you do. The other thing that it will do, it will transform the lives the lives of people around you when they see the way you are. And they may be enemies at one time in your life, but down the track, if you respond to people this way, it's hard for them to stay your enemies for a long time. It is. And finally, it will transform and bless your own life. Most of the burdens that we carry around in our own lives are things we choose to carry. God tells us to dump it. God tells us to let it go. And we choose to carry it. So this is the thing I want to speak to you about today. Now let's go back. And let's see what they were doing wrong. Because do you remember this, these passages? Jesus was being critical of the righteousness of the Pharisees. And he was telling the people, they've got it wrong. They have it wrong. They've been teaching you the word of God, in the wrong way. They've misinterpreted it and they've misapplied it and their own lives don't match up to it. So he says that the law in terms of where it says, thou shalt love thy enemy and hate thine... Sorry, love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy is wrong. And if you look back at the original where it was written in the Old Testament, you'll find it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You don't have to turn with me. I'll read it out for you. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the, people, the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. I am the Lord. Simple. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Thou shalt have no vengeance and no grudges. Do you see that second part and hate thine enemy in there anywhere? Did you hear it? No. It wasn't there. They added this second part later on. But what does the scriptures teach about an enemy and how to deal with him? Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 23. We'll read just two passages about what the scriptures tell us about how to deal with an enemy. 
Exodus 23, look at verse 4. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou shalt see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldst forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Now, hang on a sec. This is my enemy, the person who hates me. His, his ox or his ass have gone astray. And I'm meant to go there and help out with, with his stuff? Yes. That's Old Testament. Not new. Is there grace there? Oh, yeah. There's grace. Because what it calls you to do is not just ignore it and not take it away, not do something bad, not run away from it. It tells you to do something actively to fix it and to help that person who's your enemy. Now, why would God do that? Why would God teach something like that in the Bible? Could it be that he's like that? And he wants his, he wants his children to have the same nature as him? Let's look a little bit more. Turn to Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21. Proverbs 25, 21 says, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. That's, Paul repeats that in the New Testament. But the principle is the same. Do good to your enemy. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water. Is that an active thing to do? It's not passive, is it? If he's hungry, you don't just ignore him. You don't, you don't do something to make it worse for him. It's actually telling you to be good to him. To be good to someone means you actively have to make a choice and you have to follow it through with action. So what had gone wrong? Well, what they did was they added that little bit at the end. Because they couldn't imagine themselves, if the Bible says that you know, you've loved thine enemy... They could not imagine doing good. Sorry, if it's love thy neighbour, they couldn't imagine doing the same thing to an enemy. There's got to be a difference there. So they chose to interpret the law and add that bit on the end. The cults are good at doing that. They'll, they'll read a verse. They can't accept it for what it says. So then they'll have, to, they'll have to presuppose or build something into that verse to make it mean something else to fit their, um, their doctrine. And in this particular case, what they had done, they had corrupted the actual, the original intent of that law. And then what they did is they refused to apply it universally also. Do you remember the discussion with the Good Samaritan? Do you remember that, that, uh, that story that Jesus gave? That, was a, that revolved around that. Turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Because what they did is they chose to redefine who your neighbour was or define it along very narrow categories. In other words, your neighbour was either people living around you, the ones that liked you, the people of your own race and religion, but didn't apply to anyone else. Luke 10.25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbour as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Interesting question he, he threw back at him. Because in their minds, the Samaritans weren't your neighbour. The Gentiles weren't your neighbours. They may have been living right next door. Mind you, they were, they were being occupied by the Roman army at that stage. They may have been living next door to some, some Roman soldiers. They weren't your, your neighbour. So for them, it was about who they chose as their neighbours and who they chose, who they would be friendly with and, and love, as the scripture said. Then they would exclude everyone else, which means I love only the people that love me. And that's why Jesus, when he described in this particular parable, the Jew that had been robbed and beaten up and then he had been assaulted and his own countrymen, a priest, and then a Levite walked by, ignored him completely. But it was a Samaritan that actually noticed the guy was, um, was in a bad state and then took mercy on him and fulfilled the law that the Jews weren't fulfilling themselves. The very ones they counted as enemies to them, they had chosen them as enemies, were the ones who were actually fulfilling God's law. Now, that's a bit of a slap in the face. Because if your enemy is fulfilling God's law, and you who pride yourself in the knowledge that you have of the law, that wouldn't have been a very nice message and a very nice teaching to take. But Jesus basically said to him that it was your enemy that fulfilled God's law, not you, not the actual Jew. And if they can fulfill it, then so can you, which means having to do the same to them. And in this case, the Jews had counted the Samaritans as enemies because they considered them heathens and half-castes. Jesus destroyed that, that myth about them not being a neighbour. Destroyed the myth about the Romans not being neighbours. Destroyed the myth about all, of gen, all the Gentile nations not being neighbours. In other words, whoever was living among you, whoever you had contact with, was your neighbour. You couldn't pick and choose who you liked. It referred to everyone. But the question then is, who is your enemy? Who then is your enemy? And if you look at the scripture... If you go back to what it says, anyone who curses you. So if someone's actually cursing you, they're your enemy. It also says, anyone who hates you, who for some reason despises you, for whatever reason, whether it's racial, political, religious, or personal reasons, they may hate you for whatever reason, they're your enemy. But Jesus says, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Most hatred arises in our world not by direct contact with people. People hate people they've never met. They've never ever spoken to. They hate them because of a classification and an identification that they put them in. 
And Jesus is clearly teaching this here, that by identification, we will be hated because the world hated him first. And the point is further clarified because Jesus states that the world hated his disciples because they were no longer of the world. They were somehow different to everyone else. They were chosen by the Lord to live in a manner outside of the world. Now remember once again, we're speaking about the Sermon on the Mount, which is a treatise on the kingdom of heaven as it would exist on the earth. The kingdom of heaven was invading the earth. And this is what the, the kingdom people would be living like. Very different. What happens when you're very different to everyone else? People begin to get suspicious. You know, what is it about Baptists? You know, you're a fundamentalist? You're a religious, a Christian fundamentalist? That doesn't sound good. Something wrong with that. Why have you guys gone off on your own tangent? Why can't you just be along with all the other religions? Why can't you just be a Catholic or, a, or a, um, an Anglican church member? What is it about you guys? You're rebellious. Maybe you, there's something subservient about what you're doing. Or something, uh, sorry, subversive, not subservient. One is, to, one is to actually serve, the other one is actually <laughs> rebel. What is it? People, when you start, for example, when we speak about us homeschooling Alicia, what's the first thing that, people, that would come to people's minds? Do you think? Oh, they might be polite about it. The first thing is, well, sort of, What's wrong with school? The first thing they would question is, are they judging me because I send my children to school? Or the other thing is, why are they teaching their child that they don't, that they don't want the schools to teach them or they're not getting in schools? When you are different, you are prone to being judged and turned into an enemy, even though you've done nothing at all to provoke it. And Jesus basically guarantees his children and his disciples will be judged and treated as enemies by the world because we've been chosen out of this world. So prepare yourself. Be prepared. Because if you live a lifestyle that's different to this world, you will be hated. It also says in this passage, anyone who despitefully uses you, that means they abuse you, they treat you, they treat you despitefully, they falsely accuse you of things. But you know something, they did the same thing to Jesus. When you talk about just being despitefully used, let me give you a perfect passage for that. Listen to this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers to watch, I'm assuming, and, and cheer on. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Do you want a good description of being despitefully used? That's it. I've never got to that stage just yet. I hope I never will. How did he respond? 
And finally, it says, anyone who persecutes you is your enemy. Now, these are not people that you choose to be your enemies. The point of this whole thing is, these are people who, have cho- who they have chosen to become your enemy. And as a result of them choosing to be your enemy, they curse you, they hate you, they despitefully use you, and the final thing is, they persecute you. Interesting thing is that Paul describes himself in the same way. He tells us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. He wasted it. He was destroying it. He was actively out there to destroy the church. And there are people who would be actively out there to destroy this church and you as a Christian. So your enemy... As I said, they come in all shapes and sizes. If you look at it from that perspective, an enemy can be a family member. It can be a neighbour, a co-worker, someone who you just know walking down the street. It could even be your government. Or it could even exist in your own church. In other words, just about anyone who does not like us and who has some agenda against us, can be an enemy. But the problem we've got is not identifying the people who are actively doing something against us. Would you agree? If something's trying, someone's trying to do something bad to you, and is persecuting you, and hating you, and doing all these things to you, despitefully using you, would you have a problem identifying that they're an enemy or not? The problem we have, as people, is that we identify people who don't count themselves their enemies as their enemies. That's our problem. We make the list of people who are enemies larger than what it actually is, not smaller. Because identify your enemy is the easy thing. They're the ones who are persecuting you. They're the ones who are despitefully using you and doing it on purpose. The problem is, with Christians, is that they count people as enemies who don't have an intention to do anything wrong to them. They may have taken something wrong the way they said it. They may have tried to put two and two together and come up with ten. And they begin to count and add people to their list of enemies because they, they imagine in themselves that these people are like that. That's the average struggle, that we make our list of enemies larger than what it actually is. So if you were to think right now how many people you would count as enemies... Could you be 100 or would you be 100% sure that they actually are your enemies? Or could there be a possibility that you've got a few people in there that don't quite fit that bill? So how does, say, how does Jesus say to treat those enemies? He says to love them. He says to love them and not to hate them, but rather show active goodwill toward them. Now, the scriptures tell us what love is like. So the scriptures say, this is what love looks like in, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, think about this. If the Bible says we are to love our enemies, then it says that charity suffereth long. Suffereth long. Which means that you're very patient with them. They may continue to hate you. They may continue to harass you. They may continue to have all types of, 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 um, of accusations against you. The Bible says... 
that if you truly love them, you'll be patient with them. You won't react quickly. You'll be very patient. And then it says that it's kind, which means an act of kindness, you can't be kind without doing something. To be kind to someone means you're actively doing something for that person. It says it envieth not, which means I don't think in my mind that I'm better than them. It vaunteth not itself. Sorry, that was that one. The envieth, which is wanting something they've got. In other words, if you think they've got the upper hand on you, you don't think in your mind, I wish I was in their position. Vaunteth not itself means you don't think you are better than them and puff yourself up. Even though you may be doing the right thing and not retaliating and doing good to them, you don't think in the back of your mind, because I'm doing this, I'm better than them. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave itself unseemly, which means you don't respond with unkind words. You don't act rashly. Don't seek your own. In other words, don't seek your own good. Seek their good. It's not easily provoked. Not easily provoked. Which means they may poke and prod. They may test your limits. But you're not easily provoked. You don't quickly respond. You don't think evil of them. You don't imagine things that may not be true about them. Puffing them up and making them into a demon. Making, turning them into a devil. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. It never fails. It never fails. True love never fails. They may kill you, but love is one. True love never fails. So it tells us to bless those who curse us. Do the exact opposite. If someone's hurling abuse at you, speak to them gently and nicely. Bless them. Speak kindly to them and about them. Don't go and slander them. They may be slandering you, but the, the idea is that you don't go around slandering them to everyone else as well. You speak nicely to them and you speak nicely about them. It says to do good to those that hate us. They may be doing bad things to you. The Bible says to don't return in kind. Return the exact opposite of what they've done to you. Do good things to them. And then it says to pray for those who despitefully use you. In other words, if they're taking advantage of you, pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would bless them. Pray that God would help to break through those barriers that exist. And pray for God to use you for that purpose. Now what he's basically said here is simply an expansion of verses 39 to 42 that we saw last time. Don't seek vengeance. Don't resist an evil person and instead react in a positive, gentle and loving way. That's the way God's called us to react or respond to our enemies. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons why. The first one, he says, is that you may, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven or the children of your Father in heaven. Why? Because you've been identified and you've been adopted into his family. 
So when you have an identity, the, the, the right thing to do is to live up to that identity. Alan's, got, Alan, Alan's job is a very visible job. He showed us his uniform the other day. Okay? He walks around at night. Would people have any problem knowing who he is or what position he holds? I don't think so. I mean, he's got a gun. He's got a gun, he's got a jacket, he's got a badge, he's got all these things hanging off him. And he's walking around. Now, would people have a problem seeing that, identifying him as a protective services officer? No, the answer is no. That should be the same for you. That should be the same for us. Our identity should determine the way we act. If he ran around the, the, the station causing all types of problems, would that fit? No. People expect when they see someone in that role, dressed like that, to respond and behave in a certain way. Correct? Well, your Heavenly Father expects you and I to respond and to act in a certain way each and every day of our, days of our lives. God expects his children to be like him. And how does, and how does he, he respond to evil people? Well, the Bible tells us, He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. How's that? that good? Does God bless the people that, that hate him? Yes, he does. He continues to give them good things. He doesn't, he doesn't kill everyone who is against him. He actually blesses them by sending them rain and sun and all the things they need to live. Why does he do that? Because God is a gracious God. God is a patient God. God is epitomised by love. Luke chapter 6 verse 35 says, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. That's a beautiful passage. Be like him. The same way he is towards us should energise us to be that way with other people as well. Why is that Christians aren't like that? That's, that's something that's always confused me. As Christians, we should be the most merciful, gentle, kind, patient, loving people in the world because we have had the most love and patience and mercy and kindness shown to us. You know what scares me? is that people can go through their lives not behaving like that at all. Calling themselves Christians. If the Bible says that, do you remember the parable of the, um, of the steward who owed his master so much money and, he, didn't, and he, he actually forgave him all his sin? He forgave him all of his debt? Then that master went out... Then that servant went out and started collecting it and beating up everyone else for his money. What happened to him at the end? Was he genuine? No, he wasn't genuine and he wasn't forgiven. He was put in jail. God is merciful and kind to the unthankful. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5.
Look at verse 8 to 10. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God sent his son while we were his enemies. We rejected God. We had, we were, we had classified ourselves as his enemies. And in the midst of all that rebellion and sin, God still sent his son out. He could have said, no, this, is, this guy's a, a waste of time. I'm going to start things all over again. He didn't. He didn't give up on us. Instead, in the midst of our sin, he actually did the thing that showed us how much he loved us more than anything else. And that's why we can love. That's why we can love other people because we've been shown such great love. It says here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We can only love and understand true love because we've been shown love. The old adage, like father, like son, you've heard that one before, should apply to us more than any, any other people in this world. Because we have a heavenly father who deals with us and has loved us. And we should be living as him in this world, as our saviour, in real terms. The fact that God loved us so much and showed his character to us and continues to reveal himself in his word should reveal itself in us, in the practical things we do in our lives. First of all, in that relationship we have with him, and then it should flow through to every other relationship we have in our lives. We should affect every person in our lives in a positive way. Not expect to be affected upon and to be, and to be given to, but we should have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives with enough the Bible says that we, God has not given us a, a spirit of fear, but of love and of a sound mind. If you're a Christian today and count yourself as a child of God, you've been given a sound mind. There is no need to fear. You've been given everything you need to live a holy life in this world and, and your salvation is secure. Live it. And you start influencing everyone around you in a positive way. God did. We can truly love because we have been loved. It's something that should come naturally to us because God has implanted his nature within us. If there's nothing coming out of that nature, what's happened to it? Is it there? Or have you spent all your time feeding the flesh so that it's no longer visible at all? It's something that should come naturally to us. And you might say, oh, that's difficult to go out and do something that's good for someone who hates you. But I tell you, it should come naturally to us as drinking water from a glass. Let me ask you this question. We look at, people look at how Jesus died on the cross and they marvel at it, right? They marvel because while he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now we can look at that and make that, that's the most loving statement, the gracious statement that has ever existed in all, all of humanity. But let me ask you a question. What came naturally to him? Did that come naturally to him? 
Or do you think it was more natural for him to start cursing them from the cross for what they were doing? You know the answer to that. It was natural for him to say forgive them, even though he was being crucified. It would have been unnatural for him to start cursing them and to start telling them off and rebuking them for what they were doing to him. Why? Because of nature that he had and because of the relationship that he had with his father extended to every other relationship in his life. It came naturally. The relationship he had with his father sustained him and gave him the power and gave him the ability to do all those things, which we find extraordinary and the world finds extraordinary. But this is the nature that God has planted within each and every one of us, you see. He hasn't given you less. He's given you everything. The same spirit which led Jesus is the same spirit that he's planted within your heart. Do you, do you and I have any excuse not to live like this? I don't see it. And if we don't do it, he says here, if you love them which love only love you, what reward have you? Don't the publicans, the sinners, the tax collectors do all that? You've got a problem with them? They do exactly the same thing. Don't criticise them when you're doing the same. And if you salute your brethren only, don't, don't average the average sinners do the same thing. Don't expect that you're going to be getting a reward for doing the same thing. A fellow called Stephen Alford tells of a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution, Peter Miller, who lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Okay, Peter Miller was a Baptist pastor. <clears throat> he enjoyed a friendship with George Washington. In Ephrata also lived a guy called Michael Whitman, an evil-spirited sort of guy, who would oppose and humiliate the pastor every opportunity he got. He hated him. One day, Michael Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. Peter Miller travelled 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. 70 miles on foot, that's going out of your way. To plead for his life, even though he was his enemy. When he started to plead for his life, Washington said no. I can't grant you the life of your friend. He thought, he thought he was a friend of his. My friend, exclaimed the old preacher, he's the bitterest enemy I have. What? Said Washington. You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant your pardon. And he did. He wasn't just going to save a friend who he had an automatic connection with, who, who, was, who would have maybe Washington thought that doesn't matter what he'd done, he would just defend him. This guy was defending an enemy and trying to save his life. The beautiful part of that story is that it says that Peter Miller took Michael Whitman back to a Friday, no longer as an enemy, but, but a friend. Loving your enemies can transform them in ways we can't understand. 
being good to your enemy may not always change them, but it allows the grace of God to do something that it can't do when you're fighting back, can it? When you love your enemies, when you do good to them who hate you, you open the door for grace to work. When you do the same thing back to them, you shut the door of grace because they can see in you. It's either they see Christ in you or they don't or they see a reflection of themselves. Abraham Lincoln once said, Am I not destroying my enemies when I make friends of them? The best way to destroy your enemies is to turn them into friends. And the way you turn them into friends is to love them. An act of love toward an enemy can disarm the tension, can disarm the hatred. It opens a door for grace. The other thing it does, it frees you. It frees you and I. You see, if I have an enemy who hates me and I choose then to become his enemy, what have I locked myself into? A lifetime of hatred. A burden that I don't need to carry, but that I choose to. It locks me in to the way the world works and cripples me as a Christian. It hides the nature of God within me and causes me to, to fall to the depths of this world. And I'm no longer a light in the world. I'm no longer visible in darkness. But choosing to love your enemy allows you to live on that... You know, it says we sing that, that hymn, um, higher, higher Ground. That's where you live. You can live on higher ground by choosing to love your enemy and not on the depths of the valley. If you love your enemy, you can live a life that's free. If you choose to hate your enemy, you will bind yourself as surely as locking yourself up in a, a steel cage. The choice is yours. George Washington Carver once said, I will never let another man ruin my life by making me hate him. It's a good philosophy to have. And the Bible then says, only then will you then be perfect. If we can love our enemies, it's at that stage we can say we're perfect like God, that we're living like him. Because this is not an easy thing to do. But then again, it should be a natural thing to do. So, if we want to be the sons of our Father in heaven, if we want to be perfect as he is, if we want to live lives that are free and we want to help free other people who are opposed to us, then love your enemy. And it comes down to doing one thing, really. Who do you imitate and who do you emulate? Who is it that you copy? You know, when I was young and growing up, and I feel for teenagers today, because they want to be accepted so much, they try to imitate their friends around them by doing the same things, liking the same things, speaking the same way, acting the same way, because they don't feel accepted. They want to be part of that group. So what they'll do is they'll sacrifice other things to be part of the group and they'll imitate what the group does. It's called peer pressure. When I was younger, I was 
not immune to peer pressure as well. But I had certain idols that I wanted to be like. So I would actually copy the way they were. I would look at them on a video or something like that, and I'd, I'd, I'd watch the way they'd walk and they'd talk, and I'd think, wow, that's cool. If I was like him, my friends would be impressed. So I tried to be like that. It's called an idol. We imitate the things that we think will make us more powerful, more loved, more accepted. But there is one who we should imitate more than anything else. More than anyone else. That's our saviour. There shouldn't be any idol in our lives. He should be the only one who we choose to imitate in every possible way. The problem is we don't necessarily have him as our idol. And I'm talking about idol in, the, in a, a worldly sort of sense. Where we look to him and we say, I want to be just like him. As people imitate the pop stars of today. We should be, he should be the highest priority on our list about the way we want to live our lives and be like. Is it the case for us? Because if you choose to emulate him, what you're saying is, he's the one I want. He's the one I want to be accepted by. You see, you emulate people you want to be accepted by or loved by. If you choose to emulate Christ, what you're saying is, He's the one I want the approval from. He's the one I want to keep happy. He's the one I want to be in with. But the problem is we waver between him and the world. We want to impress all the world and we want to impress him at the same time. And that is impossible. The Bible says that we've been transformed from within. Love, in a sense, is a learned thing as well. Children who, who grow up in, in homes that aren't loved, where they aren't loved and they're abused or have problems later on in life trying to love. They confuse love and lust and all these different types of things. If someone isn't loved as they're growing up, they struggle later on to love. Why? Because love, in a sense, is a learnt thing. It's something that's it's within us, but it's something that's also learnt. Where you see love in action, you can imitate it. That's why Paul says, be like me. Do like me. I'm doing this in front of you. He could have said, be like Jesus. But no, he knew in a sense that what they were seeing him do, he could confidently say, live as I am. Do as I do. If you want someone just to, just to, to physically see and imitate Let me close the story. The enemy of the world, Satan, was on the side of life's road with a very large cage. Man came towards him, noticed the cage, that it was crammed full of people of every kind, young, old, from every race and nation. Where did you get these people? The man asked. I, from all over the world, Satan replied. I lure them with drinking, drugs, lust, lies, anger, hate, love of money and all types of things like that. I pretend to be their friend to give them things in return. And that I'm out to give them a good time. And then when I've hooked them, in the cage they go. And what are you do going to do with them now? The man asked. 
Satan grinned. Oh, I'm going to, now that they're all in the cage together, I'm going to prod them, provoke them, get them to hate each other and destroy each other. I'll stir up racial hatred, defiance, rebellion. I'll make people bored, lonely, dissatisfied, confused, restless. It's easy. They'll turn on each other. People will always listen to what I offer them and blame God for the outcome. And then what? The man asked. Those who do not destroy themselves, I will destroy. None can escape me. The man stepped forward and said, can I buy these people from you? And Satan snarled and said, yes, if you give me your life. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, paid for the release. He paid for your release, your freedom from Satan's trap with his own life on the cross at Calvary. The door is now open. And anyone whom Satan has deceived and caged can be set free. Jesus gave himself to free us when we were his enemies. He went such a long way to do good for us that it should be the very thing we imitate each and every day of our lives. If there's anything we learn in our lives, isn't it to imitate him with what he did? And if he's gone that far to save a wretched person like me, how far should we go to save those people who hate us around us? We've been called to give our own lives to free those people who would call themselves our enemies. But they can never be freed if we become their enemies. In fact, all we do is then walk into the cage ourselves. And we choose to live within its boundaries again. Can we stand here today calling ourselves the children of God? The question you have to answer for yourselves. Do you live within the cage 